0: We do have a ton to get through in this episode.
1: Common sense is finally prevailing.
0: There was controversy this month, Dave.
1: I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and
0: things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round.
1: Every doctor who is liked by somebody, and that's a really good
0: thing. Dave my doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave.
1: I get why fans are asking those questions.
0: Oh, gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It- Doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The carnal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who show, rounding out the month of September 2022. I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And Dave, as promised at the end of last episode, this time around, we're going to be pulling out and dusting off our target novels of Slipback, the Eric Sayward-penned novel, based on his 1985 radio play of the same name.
1: We are, Rob, but wait, there's more, because after we've talked about the book, we'll also mention the radio play.
0: We will, because it's something I find that doesn't get a lot of mentions in Doctor Who fandom. And perhaps with that audio now available on the Season 22 box set, more people might be tempted to listen to it. Maybe they're hearing about it for the first time. I don't know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've always said there's not... That much Colin Baker to talk about. So here's a bit of extra Colin Baker. But listeners, if you tune in right now, you won't just get the book, you won't just get the radio play. We'll throw in a set of
0: steak knives. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I had to. I had to. Very good. So that's the show. But of course, before then, we'll do some news, we'll do some short topics. At the end, I'll tell you all what I've been watching on TV. We've got it all. It's our usual monthly flagship show. It is. So, Rob, I think you're going to kick us off. I'm going to kick us off with some news and some big news, Dave, because finally we have a name for the centenary special. It's The Power of the Doctor. And it's got to be the most underwhelming thing ever, leading me to wonder why it's been held secret for so long. You know, we've spoken about this before, Dave. The BBC publicity folks seem to have no idea what makes publicity. You know, guys, guys, let's, let's hold off releasing the name of the special until the last minute, and then when people hear it, they'll be amazed. Uh, no, not really.
1: I have spent this last week being slightly baffled Because I must confess, Rob, I am neither underwhelmed nor overwhelmed or frankly whelmed about (laughs) the name of the episode. And I've never really cared about the name of the episode, but but people are just losing their minds over... the name of the episode it's the worst thing to ever happen it's the best thing to ever happen it means this is going to happen uh, you know i've seen long scribes about the power of the doctor well we all know the power of the doctor is love and that means it's going to justify thasman and it's going to be like, like <laughs> guys it's some throwaway title who cares
0: oh god i, I said it that straight away at the time We've had Night of the Doctor, Day of the Doctor, uh, Time of the Doctor. It was sort of like a trilogy about a decade ago. <laughs> like, just leave it there. Let's let's have something new
1: sounding. Well, I'm totally indifferent. I just genuinely don't care. Right. Like, it's going to flash up on the screen for three seconds, and that'll be the last I'll think of it. Like, who cares?
0: hmm One thing I will say, though, these BBC publicity folks think they're they're really good at what they do and they're really, really not. Meanwhile, RTD can just go out and make one funny or cryptic tweet about virtually anything, usually nothing even important, and fandom just eats out of his hand for weeks afterwards. You know, and I'm very glad we're heading back in that direction with publicity. Also worth noting, in Radio Times, which was via DWIM, apparently, the episode is going to have a Sherlock Holmes, Reichenbach Falls moment. Now, whether this means the Master and the Doctor take a tumble from a great height together, uh, sort of like Legopolis, but with both of them falling this time, I don't know. Or whether it's something more subtle, but apparently there's something to do with that Sherlock Holmes story in there.
1: Yes, but was that actually official, or was that just an offhand comment from Sasha Dwan?
0: That is a good question. I would need to do more research to know for sure, but because it's come through that august organ of Doctor Who, Dwim, (laughs) (laughs) I want to say there must be something to it.
1: Yeah, look, I I haven't gone into a lot of depth, but I vaguely think, and I could be completely wrong here, that it was Sasha Dwan sort of made a comment, and... um, it could mean a number of things. Uh, to me, it was sort of a flashback to the original Robert Holmes ending of Trial of a Time Lord, where he wanted what he called a Reichenbach Falls moment of the Doctor and the Valiard struggling in the Matrix and mm. cue the credits. And who knows where we're coming back next season? So I thought, you know, that was an interesting reference. You know, does it just mean there's going to be a big dramatic, two, you know, one on one between the Doctor and the Master? Does it just mean there's going to be a waterfall? (laughs) You know, who knows? Um, I've seen a lot of speculation again as well. Reichenbach Falls is probably one of those references that we need to ban from pop culture because it's just so overused and usually only very tangentially used.
0: Mm, mm. Oh, and someone being someone else's Moriarty. Yes. If they're vaguely in opposition to each other, oh, it's it's his Moriarty.
1: yes especially as i've never come across moriarty in any actual sherlock holmes oh
0: is that right
1: yeah like i've seen you know the star trek take on moriarty and i heard every this is this guy's moriarty but the only sherlock holmes books i've read didn't have moriarty so you can't be that big a deal
0: (laughs) did you watch the modern show though
1: sherlock oh i tried a couple of times and no it was terrible oh
0: okay because jim moriarty popped up in that
1: jim moriarty yes he sounds like he sounds like a good bloke.
0: I thought he was alright. <laughs>
1: cool. We've gone way off that. We, topic. Have. we have. So I might pick up the second news item, which is a little announcement that caught in my eye from Stephen Wyatt, who of course is a former Doctor Who writer, notably of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And I'll read a little paragraph from his website here. Mm-hmm. Stephen Wyatt, the greatest show in the Galaxy writer, has written a beautifully poignant and waspishly witty two-hander about the last days of JNT as he tries to write his tell-all memoir alongside his outspoken partner, Gary Downey. Christopher Gard and Peter Noble are playing JNT and Gary. So I'm not quite sure what format this is in, but they talk later on about it being recorded. So I assume it's something that's going to get some sort of a... Release either on radio or CD or, I don't know, maybe even via Big Finish. But that, to me, just sounded really interesting because Wyatt's a very good writer. Uh, I don't like everything he wrote for Doctor Who, but I like his style. Mm -hmm. And he's had 30 years to mature as a writer since then. The idea of a stage play-ish two-hander between JT and Gary Downey, presumably as JNT looks back on his career and he's trying to write it down and gary's throwing in interjections you know that guy was a bastard no he wasn't yes he was or that was a big mistake well yes it was or Mm. that could be really really interesting i'm i'm going to be keeping an eye on that one i'm really really interested
0: i find it a really niche thing even within doctor who fandom to write something like this i find it interesting too i've got to say i'm assuming it will be funny i have i have the vibe it will be funny like, I, I know J&T ends up a sort of a, a tragic figure if anyone's read his autobiography, et cetera, but I imagine the two of them kind of bitching at one another somehow. And I think that could be funny.
1: That's interesting because I latched on to that, that very sad ending to J&T's life, you know, where he and Gary particularly were, were quite alone in some ways. Mm. And, and J&T really, really did feel as though his career... Had been destroyed by Doctor Who, and he couldn't get new projects up at the BBC and and all the rest. Of it. And I sort of saw it as being a very sort of black humour Maudlin type stage play. But but you're right. I mean JNT and Gary Downey were very gregarious mm. camp characters, and it could be a, a, a you know a dark but quite camp. Quite funny play. You're right. You're right. I hadn't thought about that.
0: Maybe it's in two halves, sort of a, a fun half and a, a darker half.
1: Yeah, or it could be one of those ones where they're sitting there and they're having the, the conversation in the now, and then the stage lighting changes, and suddenly they're themselves 30 years ago, and it's a different vibe.
0: Ooh, we should write this, Dave. <laughs>
1: Well, it's probably too late, I think, because look, I think whatever we come up with won't be as good as Stephen White.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And look, something I didn't say and I meant to, Stephen White obviously knew JNT. So if anyone's going to write about this guy in any way, someone who knew him is a a good start.
1: Yes. No, that's very true. So look, if we hear more news on that, we will update our listeners. Hmm.
0: I will round out the news by mentioning that the Moff, Stephen Moffat, has given an interview to The Guardian under the headline, Insane Right-Wing Misogynist? question uh, mark. I'm none of those things. That's also part of the heading. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was you interjecting there. <laughs> no. Uh, no, it's, it's an interview to promote Inside Man, which is a new four-part drama with David Tennant in the lead. He's playing a vicar or something, um, and Moffat's written it. But the way interviews go like this, the journalist tries to get a bit of sizzle in. And pushes Moffat on a few issues, like he's perceived to have problems with female characters in his work. It doesn't get particularly nasty, but it throws some thoughts out there at Moffat, which you read from time to time on social media and stuff, but don't imagine Moffat ever being asked to his face. So, it's a really interesting interview for people to go and seek out, I think, and and read it for themselves. Because although it is, you know, partly publicity for Inside Man, there is a bit more to it and he has some interesting answers for things
1: yeah it is one of those wonderful moments where the purely in most cases fabricated and speculated opinions that people assume someone has and then sort of just become attributed to them and just ends up in the zeitgeist that this person believes in this and actually i was completely invented Mm. and suddenly it's actually put to the person they get to go Hang on, I never said that. Yeah. You know, exactly. if you, you've added two and two and got 14 there. What are you doing?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very easy for things to become fact on social, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Repeat things often enough and people just believe them. I, I read that Stephen Moffat is terrible at writing female characters. Well, what are you basing that on? Name three bad female characters he's written. Let's, you know, if you can back up your argument, fantastic. I'll have that debate. but but if you're just going well i read it on social media he's terrible at writing female characters in fact i read he's a misogynist okay yeah have you you met the guy have you actually (laughs) put any thought into that like come on
0: yeah or he's bad at writing female characters well why do you think that oh i don't i don't like amy therefore he's bad at writing all female characters (laughs) Mm. yeah not sure about that
1: yeah so no no a very interesting read and i'm worth checking
0: out absolutely Moving on to short topics, I wanted to kick off here, Dave, with a reflection on how we're a month out from a regeneration, a big thing in Doctor Who, and then a past Doctor is coming back for some specials. Are we we allowed to say some specials, or we should just say allegedly some specials? I don't know. Then, after that, possibly next year, we're going to have the first Black Doctor in Doctor Who. He'll be in the big chair. It's unprecedented, frankly, what's going on at the moment. It's basically all change, all the time at present. And the reason I wanted to pull this out and just talk about it for a moment is because I'm not sure people really recognise that this is going on. Sure, fans know all these parts are there pumping away in the motor, like, you know, Tenet's been filming this and Shooty Gat was going to be doing that and Jodie's about to leave. They They know all the parts are there. But have they stopped to think that Doctor Who has never been like this before and may never be like this again? You know, maybe it will become more apparent as an interesting time once we've all lived through it. I don't know. And people look back and go, oh, wasn't that bizarre? With there sort of like three Doctors running around simultaneously? I, I don't know. Have you, have you put any thought into this, Dave?
1: Look, I have. And my thoughts were first triggered actually listening back to our August uh, flagship episode a month ago. Because as I listened back to me talking about the news, I realised how completely befuddled my mind must be on all of this because I was accidentally conflating a number of these different things in, into the one thing and or, or, or many things and not quite getting them right. Because you're right, I, I haven't really sort of put together the... Right, we've got the BBC celebration special, mm-hmm. which is happening towards the end of this year, then we've got some David Tennant specials, which are happening next year, we think, probably around the anniversary. Or are they spread across 2023? I'm not quite sure. But they're they're, the, they're their own different thing. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you're right, Shuri Gatwa is going to be the Doctor. But we don't know if that's at the end of the last Tennant special, or is it going to be at the start of his season, which will be 2024? maybe?
0: Yeah because do we assume the last Tenant special is the 23rd of November special next year and Shooty might appear in that but then his actual series might not start until say April of the year after.
1: (laughs) Yeah and, and we're not quite sure whether Jody will regenerate into Tenant and Tenant into Shooty. We're not sure of I think the time frame exactly on any of these. I think fans are now sort of narrowing down to a couple of options when the BBC um, thing will be on Mm. but no it's all it's all a bit of a hodgepodge in my mind and it's all very unclear but you're right when you stop and think about it as there's a there's a lot of specials uh, and a lot of bits of information and
0: a lot of doctors
1: (laughs) and a lot of doctors and a lot of companions we think yeah yeah, it, it's all it's all a blur. It really is just a blur at the moment. And, and as I say, in, in my mind, I've I've kind of been conflating. I'm like, oh, you know, oh yeah, we've got we've got the specials coming up at the end of the year, and David Tennant's in. No, oh no, he's not. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. The centenary special is not the sixtieth special, and neither are the other specials. <laughs> it's it's so funny.
1: Yeah, yeah. So look, it is it is weird. Look, I think as things start to play out as you say we will get a better handle on particularly once we have a date for the Jody one and and, and now that we're starting to see publicity for the Jody finale so we're starting to see you know f- shots and, and 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 write-ups in DWM and all the rest of it I think it's starting to now cement in my mind okay that's that yeah and, and David Tennant's not in that unless he's in the last few seconds which he may or may not be mm. <laughs>
0: Yeah I still yeah. don't know how they'll pull that off Having Jodie regenerate into Shooty But then Shooty doesn't appear for another year And Tennant is in three specials in between Oh that could be very confusing to some people
1: Yeah but that comes back to what we've been talking about For a couple of months now Is this a flashback? Is David Tennant a doppelganger doctor? Is he an alternate universe doctor? Mm. Is it is it something that happens to Jodie before Or during her regeneration? Or does it happen to Shooty? after his regeneration or will jody fall off a cliff down a waterfall hugging the master <laughs> and then fade to black and then in six or nine or twelve months time we don't know fade out of black and david Tennant standing there like, like
0: <laughs> yeah
1: we are at that phase now i think rob where we know what we don't know
0: yeah it's all guesswork like i mean i would guess that if there are three tenant specials it'll be a christmas easter and then the 60th anniversary, I think they'd spread them out like that. But that's only a guess. That's not for sure.
1: It could well be that they do the first 8th and 15th of a month or something, or, or the equivalent of that leading up to the 23rd.
0: It could be that too. Yeah. Have you got a short topic, Dave?
1: Yeah, look, just a couple of Doctor Who things I've been doing during the course of the month. I did mention last episode, based on my rereading of Bad Therapy by Matthew Jones, I was going to go buy his Bernie Summerfield new adventure, which I, I didn't buy back in the 90s because... I was buying the BBC books and I was running out of money and, mm-hmm. you know, running out of interest and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, and and that has arrived and I did read it and it was a thoroughly enjoyable book, Beyond the Sun. It's the third in the range of books. It was a very interesting experience though, because frankly, for most of the book as I'm reading this, and it's a really interesting book and Bernie Summerfield's a great character and she leads that book really well and it's still in the Doctor Who universe, but I kept sort of thinking, oh, the Doctor hasn't arrived yet. This is a bit odd. When's when's the Doctor getting here? (laughs) And it did take a while to to get that out of my mind. But I I did enjoy that. And I did actually go out and sort of see uh, how many of those books I could sort of pick up quickly and at a reasonable price, particularly sort of the first few in the series or ones by authors I know I like. So I did shop around and I didn't get a sort of a, a complete run. But of the 23, I've now bought nine. Wow, which will will see me through for at least another year. Sure. Um, And and all the other ones after that were sort of starting to creep above the price I had in my head for what I was willing to pay for a spin-off book from 20-something years ago.
0: So now you're in that sweet spot where you could set up some eBay searches and over the next 6 to 12 months just see if any pop up at a good price and just nab them as they sort of pop up because that happens.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I'll start to keep a bit of an eye on some of them and if I see one going cheap I'll potentially grab it but also you know I'll start to read a few more of these books and if I find I'm really enjoying them maybe the price in my mind I'm willing to pay will go up a bit or maybe I'll go you know what these were a nice experiment I'm glad I've dubbed into them but I don't feel the need to read all 23 and I'll 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 go away and um and maybe not buy some more we'll see how that progresses but Mm. once again the burden of being an Australian fan rears its head where you, you you look at a book on eBay and you see it and you go oh wow $30, that's a good price. Oh, postage from the UK, £40.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah, with something ridiculous No,
1: no, I won't be doing that. Some of these postages from the UK are insane.
0: I'm finding some postage prices on eBay are insane because the people are using some eBay service where they send the products to eBay and then eBay ships them for Mm, them. Right. And and the shipping there is... I don't think that service is available here. But it seems to be happening in the U.S. and the the shipping is insane, and 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 they're right, they're they're right onto the GST stuff, and they'll charge a GST as well, and, and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, oh my god, a twenty dollar book with you know forty dollar postage costs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, most of the nine that I've bought, I was able to get locally for nice a, a good price, and you know five ten dollars of postage. So. That was good. And the other thing I did, I did over the last two days, Rob, and that is I listened to Big Finish's production of The Prison in Space. Oh, yes. Which is the um, notorious script from season six of Doctor Who that got up to the hiring of the director and saying, hey, please make this story for us. And the director reading and going, you're kidding. You can't broadcast this. Go, go! Bring me the crotons. <laughs> um, Fra-
0: Fraser Hines enjoys talking about it. I think
1: he does enjoy talking about it. And I think that's probably where most of the notoriety does come from. <laughs> Although I do remember reading an article about it back in DWM in the nineties, which w- went into a lot of depth because the scripts obviously exist. They they sure. were they were in good enough quality for the director to read them and go, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very interesting walking into this. I've said before, the big finish I like the most is where they do stuff like this. They take a missing story or an unknown story or a half-developed idea and they give it to us and present it to us and we can go, oh, that's what that would have been like. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe they did try to be pretty loyal to the scripts in producing this. Now, I've got basically two points to make. The first mm-hmm. is that the whole planet of women sexual politics thing is as bad as everybody says it is it is quite cringeworthy i mean the fact that the 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 matriarch is called chairman babs for a start um you know it does end famously with jamie curing zoe's indoctrination by spanking her um (laughs) i didn't realize though that chairman babs gets her comeuppance because she just falls instantly in love with the second doctor and goes to pieces when he leaves without her and oh Oh, my god there was some really really bad stuff in there and all the, you know, men have been, have been oppressed and men need their equality now and sort of like trying to make equivalent the, the struggle of the suffragettes and other feminist groups with these poor oppressed men just was a bit, oh, no. Ooh, so look, yeah. that stuff was as bad as I expected and um, I will say that. But on the other hand, underneath that, there was quite a fun little sort of 60s future dystopian story. You know, the prison's on a cool space satellite the doctor gets to do some clever stuff. There's a little bit of interesting dystopian stuff going in there, like how does a society go from being a democracy and equality to a female-dominated oppressive regime? But then you know it is in a female oppressive regime. You go, oh, well, you've ruined it there. So I yeah. didn't, I didn't, I didn't hate the story, but it's just a shame it's kind of smothered in this awfulness. And and look, at least Doctor Who has the excuse that it was. 1969, but you know, most shows have done A Planet of Women at some point, Black 7 did one and it was cringingly embarrassing Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1 did one and that wasn't much better mm-hmm. um, Red Dwarf at least did A Universe of Women and that was quite funny although even then when you look at some of the uh, the sexual dynamics between the ca- characters, you still look at that and go yeah, even in the Women of Universe, the women are written by men and you can tell
0: hmm it sounds very much of its time when you talk about Zoe being cured. It makes me think of something like the James Bond movie Goldfinger and, and Pussy Galore being cured in that by uh, Bond just throwing her to the ground in a hay barn and having his way with us. As she so. screams,
1: no, 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 yes, it's a, hor- yeah. a horrific scene, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, very, very much so, very, very much so. So, uh, look, as I say, I'm glad Big Finish did present it to us as it was presented to the production team because I think that is an interesting historical artefact. And um, look, I took away more from it than I expected to, but yeah, it's as bad as people say. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my
0: big finish for the month. Excellent, excellent. Shall we move on to our main topic? Yes, tell us more about our main topic, please, Rob. The main topic, Dave, slip back. We're going to look at, as I said at the start of the show, the novel of slip back. But the novel is only one part of Slipback because Slipback is a novel of a radio play and this was put together in 85. So sort of between uh, season 22 and season 23 you had this radio play going out and I think they had high hopes that this could maybe become a bit of a thing but it, it really didn't. It sort of went nowhere. Probably the show going on hiatus didn't help with that. And yeah, it's just something that hasn't been talked about a lot in podcasts at least ones that i listen to so i thought it might be fun for us to look at the the novel and then dave you said well let's do the the audio as well and, and here we are
1: here we are so rob this is a bit of a unusual artifact it is i think the english were the only peoples on the earth by the mid-80s who still gather around the radio and listen to radio plays Yes, it's a very odd thing and even in the 90s when they did the two perwy ones like we're, we're putting on a radio play i'm like people listen to radio plays it's 1996 what's going on um so when did you first encounter this because it I obviously was never broadcast in australia to my knowledge
0: no i first came across the novel which was one that i just hoovered up in all the doctor who novels i was buying around that time you know going going to a bookshop pretty much every week and my mother giving me five dollars or whatever the books cost at the time you know four ninety five, and and buying a book and on this occasion I bought this book without really knowing what it was which was the case with a, a fair bit of Doctor Who I guess I was buying at that time I would buy you know a Hartnell story without really knowing much about it apart from what was written on the back cover and so I took it home and tried to read it and it just did my head in because I know we'll get to this later, but The Doctor doesn't appear for the first 50 pages. I was just bored by it as a kid, Dave, I've got to say.
1: That's interesting. I had not read the book until last week.
0: Right. Well, I hadn't finished the book until last week.
1: <laughs> interesting. Um, on the other hand, though, I did own the cassette because at a Doctor Who Club <sighs> meeting around 1990, 1991-ish, somebody was doing that thing of, you know, moving out of home and trying to sell their collection and raise a bit of cash, and they just had all of these stuff, you know, going very cheap on a table, and they had the slipback Genesis of the Daleks record cassette as, as a double cassette pack, which is what it came out as, for like five bucks, ten bucks. So I, I picked it up and went home and listened to it, and at the age of sort of nine or ten or whatever it was I, I heard it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me, it was very strange in tone. Uh, the mm. fact that it was six 10-minute episodes, I found, make it made it really difficult to listen to. It's, you felt like half the time you are just hearing the, the, the credits. Yeah. So I, I walked out of that with a very negative impression. And look, I probably listened to it again at some point in the last 20 years, but it's been a very long time.
0: Yeah. And uh, for me with the audio, I honestly can't tell you. If it's a true memory I have of hearing the audio back in the day, I'm sure a copy of it was kicking around our local club. Mark, our local club president who listens to our podcast, might like to chime in on that. I'm sure it was around, but I don't have any clear memories of listening to it. You know how there are Doctor Who fans who are like, I remember when Trial of the Time Lord went out because my mother made, you know, chicken for tea and the gravy was really fantastic that evening. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and my dad had just paid, you know, such and such amount for, for petrol when, at the local pet. They have all these really obscure memories that relate to that particular day. And you think, is that are they are those memories for real? Like, I, I can't even remember if I've heard this thing or not. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> So I can't honestly say if I heard the, the audio back in the day or not.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah. So what were your thoughts going into this?
0: Oh, look, I was very keen to give it a, a, new, a new appraisal because I knew that when I tried to read it as a kid, I was a kid. And I wanted to better understand what had put me off. And it soon became apparent what had put me off. And it didn't put me off this time because I'm older, I'm wiser, and I I just powered through it and and just read the bloody thing. But I realised why this was so unlike all the other Target novels I had and loved at the time. Yeah,
1: interesting. I went in with quite a bit of trepidation for two reasons. One being, obviously, my memory of listening to the cassette wasn't that it was particularly good. And the second was that I suddenly remembered that Eric Sayward at that time was writing stuff like the Twin Dilemma target novel mm. where he so desperately wanted to be Douglas Adams and yes. so desperately he was not Douglas Adams mm. and uh, I was worried he was going to try that again with slip back with similar results. So I walked in trying to be as open-minded as I could and uh, and certainly my impressions had did change over the course of reading it but I did walk in with some trepidation.
0: Very fair. Well, should we should we crack into it, Dave, and and do what we did last time we looked at a novel, which was Lung Barrow, if you've not heard that episode. Where we basically go through the main plot points of the, the novel so that if you haven't read it out there and you're not too fast on being spoiled, you can just hear us tell you the whole story and then we'll discuss it all at the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So look, in our discussion, we're going to be spoiling the hell out of this. So we figure we might as well give you some context for those spoilers and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll give you look just the beats of the plot for each of the 11 chapters.
0: Yeah. Shall I kick off? Please do. All right. Chapter one, The Vipod Moor. We're introduced to the galaxy of Setna Stream. We also learn about Vipod Moore, who was, apparently, a Time Lord who came to Setna Stream in the past to warn against them experimenting with time travel. As they were nowhere near doing anything with time travel, this was regarded as a really weird thing to happen. Chapter 2
1: The Life and Times of Shellingbourne Grant. We're introduced to the computer expert on the spaceship of Vipod Moore, Shellingbourne Grant who has been assigned to lead the search for something nasty in the ship's ducting, after a crew member fell to his death, but only his boots and a femur bone were found. We then get Grant's backstory, where we learn that the brain inside the body isn't Grant's at all, but a computer expert conman's who has had his mind placed in Grant's body by a surgeon, Oliver Sneed, as the perfect way to hide from the authorities.
0: Chapter 3. Something nasty in the ducting. Grant is supervising the search of the ducting. He's paranoid some of them will find some treasure he's been piling up in a section of the ducting. Grant, who believes the ship's computer is helping to guard the treasure he's hidden, is relieved when the computer assigns crew members closest to the treasure to look in a certain part of the ducting resulting in their violent deaths from an unseen attacker.
1: Chapter 4. This is the captain of your ship. We're introduced to Captain Orlis Mostyn Slan. We learn that he is a quartz-based life form and a former entertainment officer promoted by accident. When he was young, Slan used to impersonate illnesses to get what he wanted from his parents and others. He became so good at it, he could actually create real diseases
0: and infect others. Chapter 5. The Dissolute Time Lord The Doctor is drunk and in bed, having had too many in a bar with Perry. A helpful pteroleptor returned the Doctor to the TARDIS. The Doctor tells Perry to set the TARDIS in flight before passing out. While out, the Doctor hears a woman's voice, trying to give him a message. Perry is concerned at the fact the TARDIS has landed alongside a large spacecraft. It's the Vipod Moor. The Doctor gets up and discovers indications of time spillage and time experiments on the Vipod Moor. Chapter 6,
1: Bath Time Grant goes to the captain's quarters where Velspar, Slan's steward, admits him. Slan himself is having a lava bath and is not in good health. In other words, he's building up to create disease and kill someone, so Grant is naturally terrified it will be him. The Doctor and Peri are on board the ship now in the ducting and getting chased by a maston, a vicious animal that's been eating the crew. They are saved when the ship's computer shuts a bulkhead between them and the rampaging beast. Back in Slan's quarters, the captain is agitated that his missing crew haven't been found, or the beast captured. The computer mentions an Earth woman is on board, and the captain is aroused. It doesn't mention the doctor, however, as it can't. Chapter 7. The
0: Voice Within We learn that the ship's computer has a voice within that it talks to, much like having been invaded by an alien presence. The computer doesn't know what to make of this, and is being controlled by the voice, For example, not revealing to Slan that the Doctor is on board. The Doctor and Perry are trying to reopen the bulkhead that closed them off from the beast when Perry wanders into another area and that area is closed off from the Doctor. He's then told that Perry has fallen 12 metres and chances are is dead. The voice that speaks to the computer reveals that the Doctor is a Time Lord and it wants him hidden so it can extract knowledge from him separating Perry, and hopefully getting her to SLAN to be preoccupied with, is all part of its plan.
1: Chapter 8. Mr. Seedle and Mr. Snatch We learn that Perry didn't die, because she fell onto two other people, one fat, one thin, and described as a sort of psychotic Laurel and Hardy. These are Seedle and Snatch, and they are law enforcement. They are now on the trail of Shellingbourne Grant and the stolen artefacts.
0: Chapter 9. The Search Begins The computer is ignoring Grant but talking quite happily to the Doctor. It opens some bulkheads around him, sending in a servant droid who has a Jeeves-like butler voice and would like to be known as Barton to escort him away. Grant tracks down the Doctor in the bulkheads. He shoots the droid and quizzes the Doctor, believing him to be the police. The Doctor convinces him otherwise and before he expires, the droid tells them where the Doctor was to be taken.
1: Chapter 10, The Meeting of the Minds. Perry, along with Seedle and Snatch, comes across the droid butler and interrogates it. The droid conflates the Doctor's name and Grant's to Dr. Grant, raising their already held suspicion that Perry's friend, the Doctor, is actually Grant. Slan is getting impatient that Perry hasn't been found. He starts brewing up an infection that will kill the entire ship if he releases it from his body, much to Velsper's horror. The Doctor and Grant make it to the room the butler droid was taking him to. Grant stands guard, and the computer lets the Doctor inside, explaining the purpose of the ship, to study their galaxy, and how the findings have been so negative. The computer seems to have a plan to make the galaxy better, but won't share it with the Doctor... yet.
0: Chapter 11, The Search Ends. Cedal and Snatch, with Perry, find Grant. They capture and torture him, thinking he is Dr. Grant... Perry's accomplice, which he repeatedly denies, but of course they don't believe him. Inside the room, the Doctor learns how the computer got its outer and inner voices. Its hardware wasn't built properly, and ever since, it's been able to cultivate its second personality, becoming stronger over time during the mission. The computer also reveals its grand plan. The inner voice has decided to take the Moor back in time and basically act as a nursemaid to the life that forms in Setnestreen so it can oversee a galaxy with less pain, conflict and mistakes. Slan, meanwhile, is almost ready to unleash his virus to kill everyone on board. Velspar kills him, douses the body in oil and sets it alight. He then covers himself in oil, determined to join his master in death as penance for killing him.
1: Chapter 11 continues. Grant finally gets the computer to open the door to the room the Doctor is in, proving that he and the Doctor aren't the same person, and the room doesn't contain the stolen treasures that Seedle and Snatch think he has hidden in there. The Doctor warns them of the virus that's about to be unleashed across the ship, and suggests they make a run for the TARDIS. Along the way, Snatch and Seedle are caught and killed by the Maston. The rest make it to the TARDIS. The Doctor attempts to land the TARDIS inside the computer to see if he can stop it. Suddenly, a voice tells him to stop. The Doctor thinks it's one of the High Council of Gallifrey, but it's actually Viperd Moor, another renegade Time Lord. We learn that the ship of Viperd Moor, named after the Time Lord, successfully travelled back in time but exploded, actually causing the Big Bang. We then see how it happened in practice, with the outer voice telling the inner voice that it has set the ship to self-destruct. The doctor mopes in the TARDIS, annoyed that he didn't pick up on any of the signs, even the fact that the ship was called the Vipod Moor. He tells Perry that their next stop will be at a library, so he can read up on some history.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave,
1: what do we think of the novel? It is better than I expected. Okay. It has some very interesting ideas. Hmm. It's a bit of a mess. I think that we need to talk about the whole Douglas Adams shtick that Sayward was doing. When it works, it isn't too bad, but when it fails, it fails big time.
0: Yeah. The first thing I re-remembered when I started reading this was, oh, yes, this has a Douglas Adams sort of feel. Not because Eric Sayward is anything like Douglas Adams as a novelist, I'll, I'll back you on that, but because it's this kind of absurdist sci-fi stuff that Adams is known for. So it, it, it's in that wheelhouse. It's not as good as Adams. It's it's nowhere near as good as Adams, but it's in that wheelhouse. And the second thing I remembered, like I mentioned earlier, was just how it goes on and on and on and on. And it's page 50 before the Doctor enters into things. And that means it's 50 pages Literally 50 pages of reading this absurdist stuff about the galaxy they're in and Shellingbourne Grant and all of that stuff. And even on this read-through, I was trying to remember, was any of this stuff worth remembering because it's part of the plot? And, you know, what's stuff that's just there as meaningless, cheap gags and is just there to pad out the page count sort of thing? What what do I really need to remember here? Is is it important to know this or is that just a funny line? That, that that was my take on it.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of that. And even stuff that reads as though it should be important, like, for example, a lot of the background of Oliver Sneed, the uh, neurosurgeon that swaps Grant's brain around, mm. most of that actually ends up being not remotely relevant at all. Um, but some of that stuff wasn't too bad. But it does go off on some really bizarre Adams-esque tangents. Uh, a couple of them aren't, aren't, you know, too bad. But some of them are really weird. Like the way that the invention of wine changed civilizations across the galaxy. I just thought that's just trying way too hard. Uh, you know, it doesn't work that well. On the other hand, the stuff about the conference of psychologists and them warning the local natives that you know it always rains when we have our conference. ha ha. ha leads to. Noah building his ark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that 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 was actually kind of clever, and I quite liked it. There were some little throwaway lines, like uh, the one about the bar being named after Lord Lucan, as or it just sort of says, you know, it's a bar called Lucan named after some random human that's popped up on their planet, mm-hmm. which is sort of all about you know where did Lu- Lord Lucan go to and all that sort of thing. So yeah. there were lots of little throwaways in there, but the problem is they're throwaways in fifty pages of just stream of consciousness stuff that say what isn't as good as Douglas Adams. Yeah. And and even Douglas Adams would do this stuff in between plot points. So he would have the plot go in a particular direction, then have a tangent. Then he'd have some more of the plot and go down another tangent. And then they'll mention that they're going to a bar. So Douglas Adams would talk about how the cast are going to a bar and then do a whole little bit on the history of the pan-galactic gargle blaster mm. and then go back to the plot. And And that's the problem. I think if all, if all this stuff was... Space throughout the book, it would actually work quite well. And look, it's not as good as Adam's, but some of it's not too bad. But the problem is what you get is 50 pages of just prologue, like really just prologue. Yeah. Then you introduce the Doctor, yet 50 pages of the Doctor locked in a room while we're just doing a bit more background and introducing the Captain and introducing the computer and talking about all that sort of stuff. It's only in the last 40 to 50 pages of a 144-page book that the plot actually starts and the Doctor starts interacting with it. By which stage, I've got to say, it's a very pacey, exciting book. Like there's lots of plots going on, tensions being wound up. You know, Saywood's very good at that sort of thing of just throwing in some action, some tensions, and some gunfights and some mm. jeopardy. And so you get a re- the last fifty pages is really tightly paced, and he packs a lot in which is totally in contrast to the first 50 pages where he packs nothing in and there's no tension whatsoever.
0: Yeah, it's very much like he novelized the radio play and then realised he was about 50 pages short and so literally just wrote another 50 pages of preamble introducing all the characters from the radio play and just literally stuck it on the, the front of it mm. and and didn't try to interweave the stories at all you you do just read this big preamble and it's interesting because none of this background about Shellingbourne Grant or Slan or whoever is actually in the radio play very little of it is i mean there's the bit about him cultivating some disease and such but when you actually get into into detail in that in the novel that it is interesting but it is just sort of tacked on and i feel that's how he's written the thing you know half is novelization of the play Half is just, oh, I've got to make the page count.
1: So I'll ask you at this point, Rob, when you did plough through that first 50 pages this time and got into the second half of the novel, did you like it more?
0: Yeah, I did, because I, as I say, I actually finished the thing. Yeah. Um, the The story is very simple in the novel. You know, despite all of this 50 pages of background, once you get into the story, I mean, we're introduced to this certain part of the galaxy and some of the people who live there. Some of those people are on this spaceship. The Doctor and Perry land on said spaceship. They get split up. They face death a few times. They reunite and get off the ship. It goes back in time and sets off the Big Bang.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and more than that, it's got two real Sayward trademarks in there, one good, one arguably bad. Mm-hmm. The, the, the good is, as I've long said... Say what he was very good at creating universes and encouraging his writers to create universes. He would he would say to a writer, "If you're telling a story in Doctor Who and you're visiting a planet, you need to know how the planet works and what the planet's history was and how its government works and how its society works. You need to understand all that to tell the story." And 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 I think that a lot of Saywood edited stories are very good like that. And this book was very good like that. The, the Viper and Moore didn't feel like a random spaceship in the middle of nowhere. It felt like a spaceship in a society, in a galaxy with worlds and backgrounds and, and, and the like. So that was really good. Mm. The other Sayward thing that happens in here is that nothing that happens in the book actually matters. No. Nothing the Doctor does actually matters. Nothing that any of the characters do that act- actually matters. What was going to happen happens. And everything's actually completely irrelevant. It's, it's even more than Revelation of the Daleks, where at least you get one pair of characters who call in the uh, renegade Daleks to come and take away Davros. Like they are, there's one aspect of that plot that matters. Um, in this one, nothing that anybody does actually matters whatsoever. Um, Saywood is just telling a story about a thing that happened.
0: I guess you could say the computer deciding to blow up the ship matters because it creates the Big Bang and doesn't say we'd love ships going back in time and exploding, Dave.
1: <laughs> so to deal with both those points, look, look, okay. y- 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 yes, stuff happens in the novel, but the computer was going to blow up the Viperd more once she discovered the plot anyway. It wasn't as though the Doctor explained to the computer, your alter ego is about to do this, so I need you to make this decision. Or there was some incident on board that made the computer go, oh my God, my, I need to blow the ship up. It was just when she found out what her alter ego was doing, she's gone, I don't approve of that and I'm going to blow you up. So whether the Doctor had been there or not, it would have made that judgment call. Yeah. So
0: yeah. That, that, that's,
1: that's what I'm saying about nothing sort of actually happens.
0: Yeah, I, I, I get you. I was, I was just making it funny because again though, Sayward sure loves ships going back in time and exploding. He writes about it in Earthshock, killing off all the dinosaurs. And, of course, he script-edited Terminus, where the ship is travelling in time, jettisons fuel, and causes the Big Bang there. So why are we revisiting that just a few years later? Has Had he become confused, Dave? <laughs> you no, know.
1: I, I, think, I think what it is, he just thought that was a really good idea. And I suspect he also thought that this was a radio play going out on kids' radio on an obscure BBC radio station that hardly anybody would ever listen to. And certainly after it had been aired once, no one was going to listen to ever again. And certainly there was no chance that a couple of middle-aged Doctor Who fans 30-something years later would be making a podcast going into detail about <laughs> what he was going to do or that he would have to write a Target novel or that you know Doctor Who fans were going, ''Oh, it happened in 10 minutes already.'' He just thought, you know, no one's listening, no one cares. I can pinch this plot, no one will notice. And uh, and that's what happens. But I will say to you, Rob, mm-hmm. there is nothing that says that the Vipod Moor couldn't end up at the start of the galaxy and millions of years later be found and called Terminus.
0: Wow, there's there's a big finished plot, Dave. You should <laughs> script it for him and send it in.
1: It is interesting because Sayward has this double peril Going on, he has the threat to everybody based on the fact that there's a mad computer in control that wants to take the ship back to the creation of the galaxy. Okay, that's one threat. But then he has the double jeopardy of, and the captain's concocting this terrible disease that's going to wipe out the crew. So there's a there's there's, there's a there's a time limit on we everything. We've got we've got happen. Things got to happen because if that one doesn't get us, the other one will get us, and we're under pressure. And sort of everything's complicated by the fact that there's a Ravenous blood-batter beast of trial—substitute mm. um, um, wandering around the ducting. So yeah, like he throws in all these bits of tension, but doesn't actually save anybody from it. No, um, to 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 the point that Cheadle and Snatch, who have basically been the comedy relief characters, certainly in the book, he doesn't want to take him on the TARDIS with him, so they just get brutally eaten. But but more than that, one character gets—I think it's Snatch—gets caught by the Maston and, and eaten. And then his partner's like, well, if he's gone, I guess I need to go too. Honour, I guess. Mm. And just, just sort of like goes and gets eaten himself. That, that felt very flat. And I, th- I think that is also a very sort of sayward, mercenary with life kind of
0: attitude. Yeah, big time. Now, I mentioned a moment ago the story speeding up. And it's so true because when I made the initial synopsis for us to read, Dave, I could find about three things to say about each chapter. Three dot points. Let's call it. But when I got to that final chapter, there was about nine or ten things because everything is squeezed in at the very end.
1: A couple of nights ago, when I was finishing the book, I had about forty pages left to go, and as I'm sort of turning the pages, I thought, "I've I've got eight pages left of this book, and a lot has still got to happen." Yes, and it all happens in eight pages, and look, Sayward is very very efficient with his use of language and and getting the plot finished in those last eight pages but it it does go really well and and look I think that's actually to the book's credit as I said I I felt reading this book like it was a four-part Doctor Who story and as you went through each part it got slightly more and more tense and slightly more and more exciting and there was a proper build-up and I I was getting to that last 40 pages and going oh what happens next what happens next and and wanting to turn the page it was a good ending he wrote that well but you're right it's very condensed and we keep making the point in total contrast to what am i reading for the first 50 pages
0: oh yeah like as as you brought up the whole wine thing this society invented wine so then they had to invent the glass because they had wine and then they had to invent the barrel because they had wine and <laughs> that just goes on and on
1: yeah it it does and there's there's many examples like that As I said, some worked, some absolutely didn't. And the the glass wine thing was just tedious.
0: Hmm. Shall we move on to the audio? Yes. Well, what did we think of it? Better? Worse? Any differences?
1: I appreciated it more listening to it now than I did when I was a kid. I will say that much. Mm -hmm. The flaws of the novel do in part exist in the radio play. I think the novel does expand on some stuff that doesn't quite work in the radio play. I think that... Schellingborn Grant, who look isn't the most three dimensional character even in the book, at least has some dimensions in the book. In the radio play, he's just a guy with generic RP accent who is apparently a thief. Who you know? Who knows? Who cares? Yeah. Um. It's really really odd. Uh, I think that as good as Valentine Dahl is playing the captain in the radio play, the character of the captain in the radio play makes no sense whatsoever. It's just this weird, angry guy played by Valentine Dahl who apparently can create spores on his body. Mm. Um, It really doesn't work. Whereas actually giving the captain all that backstory about who he was and why he does this, that that actually worked quite well. There's more to say on the captain um, and some other things. But how did you find that radio play?
0: There are tons and tons of small differences, you know, and I noted some down, like towards the end, the captain gets sicker and sicker and concludes he's infected himself, but that's all we know. And his steward doesn't kill him and then set fire to everything. And the voice at the end telling the doctor to leave things alone so the Big Bang can happen is identified as a Time Lord, but we don't go down the whole, oh it's Vipod Moore, another renegade time lord path. That that's a book thing. You know, and, and I'll go on. Even smaller things, like on audio, Seidel approaches the Maston that's eating his partner and he's got some semi-heroic words, like, he's a police officer and this is something that goes against the law that he's honour-bound to uphold. And he says all that in the novel too, but also throws in a, you're nicked, do you hear me? <laughs> which which is pure comedy value. There are differences, subtle ones. Yeah, there's some
1: much bleaker stuff in the novel that yes. I, I think is obvious because of why, uh, which is obvious because the, the the original radio play was meant for a kids' show. So you know, I, I get that. Um, but but sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And and, and the stuff you said about Slan being murdered by his valet, that's really really off color because Slan's been this sort of grotesque black comedy character all the way through the book, a sort of a figure of fun. And he's this ex-entertainment officer who just sort of failed upwards and by good luck and good virtue and a few well-placed germs, you know, ended up as the captain of this great big celebrity uh, ship. Hmm. And it's all kind of a bit funny and a bit weird and a bit, you know, a bit surreal. And suddenly you get this just segment of Velspo, you know, going and reaching for the razor blade and presumably slitting Slan's throat, then setting him on fire, and then self emulating himself as he throws himself on the pyre. And I'm like, where did this come from?
0: Yeah, he sort this of is... anoints himself in oil and
1: <laughs> And then jumps on the pyre. It's really just out of nowhere. And, and that was like, wow, that's that's really, really bleak and odd.
0: And ostensibly this you say a kid's radio play, it's still a kid's novel as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. It's a novel for kids. Yeah, that's
1: that's true. People have speculated in the past that Slan is JNT. Th-
0: there's a bit there to sort of corroborate that.
1: I must admit, had I not gone into the novel with that thought in the back of my mind, I don't think I would have spotted it. Going in with the thought in my mind, I did go, okay, I can kind of see where that's coming from. It's somebody who... Is a bad leader who kind of likes vaudeville and entertainment more than he likes leadership and process and actually doing a good job. Somebody's kind of felt upwards. And you go, look, this is building up towards the point where Eric Saywood just dumped a big steaming turd on JT's desk on, on the way out, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so, look, there may be some merit there, but did, you, you said you think it sort of had some of it there. How, how much did you think it had?
0: Well, look, I—I'll I, say I certainly wouldn't have thought about it if I was just listening to the audio, but it's—it's it's in the novel where Slan is all of those things you described, and he's got this simpering sort of sidekick, and there was some line about the sidekick fingering other members of the crew. Yes, did you?
1: I, I picked that up. Yes, and I
0: think it might have even been in quotation marks fingering. It was like, hmm, because again, knowing this going in, I was looking out for it, and when you're looking out for it you sort of see it so much more that his sort of hate towards this guy is sort of being played out in the way he's written this. So I I see it, yeah.
1: Yeah, so look, I I don't know if it's there or we've just created that and we're now seeing it, Um, but it, it, it was interesting to note it. Something else that I think does work a lot better in the book than the radio play is the final denou- denouement. The fact that the book sets up this whole thing of there was a being called Vipod Moore who just turned up sort of on every TV station in every planet in, this, in the galaxy at the same time and said, do not mess with time. And once they all started to travel through space and meet each other, they've gone, hey, that happened 50 years ago on our planet. That happened 50 years on your planet. Wow, this guy must be sort of a godlike being, Vipod Moore, and his wisdom. And he became this thing, and that's why they named the ship after him. And then we find out that he was a Time Lord, etc., etc. And I thought that was pulled together and quite a good way and it kind of justified the whole deus ex machina of the time will drop up and say doctor stop now and the Doctor, goes, oh, okay in the play it felt like a really cheap really cheap escape i think that what the say would lay down in the novel kind of justifies and makes it work
0: yeah well again in the in the audio he's not Vipod more it's it is a time lord exactly yes. Council, yeah and but fleshing it out more does make it a little more palatable i absolutely agree
1: um i want to talk about someone we haven't talked about much Mm -hmm. and then somebody else we haven't talked about much but i'll start with the one we don't talk about almost at all and that is perry i said that the doctor is almost irrelevant to this plot we'll talk about the doctor in a moment perry is completely irrelevant to this plot and unfortunately once again for a Sayward era or colin baker era story the main thing that perry has to contribute to the story is for the big grotesque monster to lust after her for half a book.
0: Yeah, it's it's remarkable that that happens again. I'm not even sure that Slan sees her. He just hears that it's an Earthwoman. And he just desires an Earthwoman.
1: Yes, that's right. He doesn't even see that it's Perry. He's just like, I'm very partial to (laughs) Earthwoman. Yeah. Um, Bring her to my (laughs) bath to molest. Uh, Look, I'm, I'm going to be on another podcast, hopefully in the next two or three weeks, where I know I do talk about what a bad run of stories Perry gets and just how many beings across the universe just want to molest her and often do. And we've got another one here. I just thought that was incredibly disappointing. Uh, Nicola plays her character perfectly well. She's very much in the middle of her time as Perry and she plays it very well on the audio, but I just thought just again, a wasted character.
0: Yeah. And the Perry character, just to go down this sort of side street a bit, the, the Perry character isn't the first attractive woman who's been on Doctor Who, so why hasn't that happened in the past? You've got to look towards the the writing and the script editing, I think, for, for why this is the case.
1: It, it, it is, and look, uh, I'm not going to go down this path too much, but it, I think it is the apotheosis of the evolution of the Doctor Who girl that we've always mm. had this idea that, you know, Doctor Who girls are there to get the dads to watch and get the teenage boys to watch a little longer. And, that you know, we sort of, they, they start to wear less and less and become more and more sexual figures until you sort of just get Perry, who is the final evolutionary version of the Doctor Who girl who is just there to wear very little and be leered at. And that kind of seeps into the plot.
0: Mm, I agree.
1: We also haven't spoken much about the Doctor now, Rob. I'm going to say something that might be controversial here.
0: Oh, please!
1: It has been a piece of accepted fan wisdom for a very long time that Colin Baker was not always that great as the Doctor on television. But my goodness, he's great on audio. And the moment he started doing audio, he was he was an excellent Doctor, and he's he's actually a better audio actor, etc., etc., etc. I think that the Slipback audio kind of disproves that because Colin in Slipback is basically just the Colin Baker doctor from season 22, but sound only. It's the same character. It's the same performance. If, if anything, it's slightly heightened. Um, some of his cliffhanger acting, I was actually driving along this morning listening to it on the freeway and the sort of the, no! <laughs> I was just going, oh, my God, Colin. So what I think is the case is that as Colin got older, he yeah. became a more subtle and a better actor because I don't think he's better on audio here at all. What did you think?
0: I think he's passable here. Oh, I'm not but, saying he's bad. But, but he's not Big Finish levels of goodness because he is good on Big Finish. Yeah. So is it ageing? Is it... I mean, I don't know how much radio work Colin had done at this point in his career. I know he'd had a good career. I mean, he'd been big back in the 70s, a decade earlier than this. I I know he'd had a great career. But had he done a lot of audio stuff, or was it a fairly new medium for him at the time? I'd have to research that to have a proper answer.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And and I think, I mean, the other thing is that I, I don't just mean from a point of view of age, but I think time passing, that by the time Colin got to do Big Finish, he'd had some time to reflect and go, if I played the Doctor now, I would do it differently.
0: Yes. And, and you
1: see that, because I, I, am, I am agreeing with you. He is far better in big finishes. And, and I'm saying that it didn't happen here. So something has evolved in the meantime. Because he, he could basically, as far as I was concerned, with his performance, it was like he'd walked off the set of Revelation of the Daleks into the studio to record Slipback. There was no difference in that yeah. character at all.
0: I hear you, yeah. I want to mention Valentine Dial because, of course, he played the Black Guardian in Doctor Who and appears in this audio. And to mention that he died 14 days after this was recorded and uh, I think a month before it actually aired.
1: Yes, absolutely. And look, Valentine Dial has got one of those remarkable voices. He is absolutely wasted here, as frankly he's wasted in all of his Doctor Who, let's let, be honest. He's far yes. better in other stuff. Yeah, no, it was a it was a good performance, and look, he did lift that character and make that character work on the audio in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, agree. Um, a couple of actors I wanted to mention, or one actress and one actor, in fact, uh, Jane Carr, who plays the public voice of the computer. I must admit, I hated that performance when I was a kid, and now I can kind of see the ironic funniness of it, and I kind yes. of did enjoy it. Um, but look, probably most recognisable to sci-fi fans is one of Londo Malari's wives.
0: Oh, is that right? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: there you go. When you think about it, you can work out which one. I think she's Tim of. Oh,
0: that makes sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: She certainly when you watch it, you know which one she is, absolutely.
0: That's right. I'll go back now. Yeah, okay. Yep.
1: And Ron Pember, who I must admit I didn't know was in this, but I did recognise him from his voice, and he's been in a number of stuff. He did a red dwarf, but probably again most recognizable as a recurring character throughout I think all of Secret Army.
0: Oh well you've watched that more recently, uh, haven't you? Yes, yes. Secret Army, yeah. oh very good. I like that.
1: What did you make of the Doctor being drunk?
0: Um, it's, it's a very sort of strange thing to come across. Uh, of course, it's written more about in the novel than in the audio. Um, certainly, it's part of the audio, but it, it's in much more detail in the novel. I mean, even with a pteroleptal helping him back to the TARDIS and all of this sort of stuff. The novel
1: kind of tr- almost tries to backtrack a little bit because in the radio play, the doctor's just been drunk. He's just been out drinking and he's drunk. Yeah. Whereas in the novel it sort of explains as sort of the Doctor just rocked up and someone handed him a drink he thought that's a nice drink and I'll drink more and sort of didn't realise that he was getting drunk. Which I thought was an interesting little sort of back paddle a bit on that.
0: Yeah, well the, the novel can be more subtle in, in that area. It might have been weird to, to convey on audio perhaps.
1: That's true. Plus the audio, I mean it's only 63 minutes and that's with six sets of credits.
0: Yes, it's a very odd thing that 10 minutes length
1: yeah look it is and obviously it's for the the kids thing but once again half the plot happens in the final 10 minutes like that it that really packs in that last episode
0: yeah yeah it does well dave that's uh slip back should we give our final thoughts on it we've picked a lot of holes in this and i
1: think as we've said many times before that is the nature of diving deep into something you you pick out the good and the bad and, and and the things that don't work I found this a really interesting read And an equally interesting listen I found that it was better than I expected And that I remembered And where it was bad Look, I did cringe a bit And in some cases I was a little bit bored But at least Saywood was trying to do something a bit different Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I appreciated it So look, it's not an instant classic It's not the best Doctor Who story out there It's not the best book It's not the best radio play But it was better than I expected and I'm glad I went back and checked out this story.
0: Okay, I prefer the novel. I think the story is much better when it's fleshed out. Yes. I don't think it's well structured, however. (laughs) No. And I think the subpar Adam's writing is very grating. But the story, which is uber simplistic at least gets a bit more depth in the novel so if I was to recommend Slipback to someone out there you know for some ungodly reason I'd recommend the novel but with the caveat that the person reading has to get through the first 50 pages of really weird sci-fi comedy before the story starts properly and I know that must sound so weird and counterintuitive why wouldn't I recommend the audio because it's shorter It's because in spite of it all, I think there's more to pull from the novel. And I think it makes the characters much more satisfying than just some voices on a tape. Grant in particular, I think you said it well, he's just a guy with an RP accent. (laughs) You don't have half the background, you know, that you get from the novel when you read about Grant.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I do think the novel gets better as it goes along. And once again, that last 30, 40 pages, I was turning the page and wanting to keep going. It was an exciting little adventure. Not a lot of depth to it, but some good ideas in there. And yeah, it was a fun little read. And look, if you're somebody who's a big fan of the Colin Baker Doctor, and you, let's face it, don't have a lot of Colin Baker Doctor to watch, Mm. this is worth checking out.
0: Absolutely, and particularly because it's of its time. It was made in 1985. When you hear Colin's voice, It's Colin in 1985. It's not Colin today pretending he's in 1985. This is the real deal. So if you haven't heard it or read it, it's worth doing, I think, especially for the completists out there.
1: Just a little thought to finish off that topic, Rob. Yeah. If Doctor Who hadn't come back from the hiatus, this would have been the last ever classic Doctor Who story. Wow. (laughs) Do we have any emails this month, Rob?
0: We do We do. We do. We've got the first one here. Well, it's not so much an email. It's a, a private message that I received on Gallifrey Base. So this is a new way to get a message. And this is from Richard, who goes by Richo over on Gallifrey Base. And he said, Hi, Rob, I know it's been over a year since this conversation took place. He's referring to our past private messages. Uh, But I've been meaning to say, soon after we had the conversation, I started listening to more and more of the Doctor Who show. And Hand on Heart can say it's one of my favourite podcasts that I now listen to as soon as it comes out. The short ones and the long ones. I really think you've got the mix right there in terms of the different lengths for different purposes. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Richard.
1: Well, thank you very much, Richard. That's a good thing to hear.
0: Yeah, and a, and a lovely thing to hear on Gallifrey Base. You don't often hear nice things on Gallifrey Base. I haven't been to
1: Gallifrey Base in years. I don't even know what my logon is, to be frank. Oh, wow. I have one here from Pat Howe, who tweets at, at Patrick J. Fury. He says, Hello, Robin, Dave. I really enjoyed the episode on Revenge of the Cybermen and wanted to pick up on your points about the importance of their absence since the invasion. I was 11 and had been obsessed with the show since the end of the Troughton era. Information about the show's history was very limited, so the only sources then were old annuals and the moon-based novelisation Doctor Who and the Cybermen. These fuelled an intense curiosity and an air of mystery about them, which was enhanced by not featuring in the Pertwee era. The excitement of their return, along with the new Doctor, and along with the shock of the new with Punk and other cultural waves felt very real. Critically, Revenge was not a disappointment. The Cybermen looked great, and the loss of continuity did not matter. It's also worth saying that the many families, including mine, still had black and white television sets, so the vagaries of the special effects were often lost. Looking back now, the stylistic changes since the start of the decade are much clearer in colour. I remember going along to the Panopticon in 1979 at the Dwass Convention, and the sudden impact of seeing an unearthly child for the first time, and to learn about show history from fanzines was brilliant, but you do lose the mystery and allure of the past. Also shown there were the Three Doctors and Planet of the Spiders. Like seeing the return of Cybermen, the appearances of Troughton and Hartnell and a regeneration were echoes of a past which pre-VHS and with no repeats in the UK, you just couldn't see. All three stories seem underrated these days due to familiarity, but were hugely impactful on fans at the time. Thanks for all your work as ever, Pat Howe. That's a really good email. Thanks for writing in there, Pat. And look, I totally agree. We now take The Three Doctors and Spiders and Revenge of the Sidemen absolutely for granted. And yeah, we we don't remember what a big deal this must have been when they went out.
0: Or even seeing an unearthly child these days People are like, oh yeah, I'll just pop the DVD in Or, yeah. or find find it on, uh, you know, some online streaming thing, you know <laughs> It's like, no, th- this is something that was very, very special once upon a time
1: Yeah, look, it absolutely was And if you don't mind me plugging in another podcast We have a long discussion about some of those aspects in fandom When I guest on the 42 to Doomsday podcast a couple of months ago
0: Very good
1: But thank you for writing in, and as always, please do send in your thoughts.
0: Absolutely. Now, Dave, we typically talk about what we've been watching around this time. Have you been watching anything?
1: Look, not a lot. Uh, Given that we are recording at the end of September, I'll be honest, most of the time my TV has been on over the last two weeks, it has been to the news and to coverage of very much real-world events. Mm -hmm. Um, So I haven't watched a lot. When we finish recording here, though, I am going to go and watch the first episode of Andor, which is the Star Wars series I've most been looking forward to ever since they announced they were starting to do Star Wars TV. So yes. I'm keen for that. Uh, I did start the first season of the Umbrella Academy, and I will keep going with that. But as I say, I kind of had my viewing interrupted by uh, tuning in very closely to some very sad world events lately.
0: Mm. I, I, I hear you. I have been watching Cobra Kai, which I just adore. I've, I've said on Twitter before... The Cobra Kai is like the Hemingway of TV shows. It's a little old school and the writing is super concise. You can have a 30-minute episode of Cobra Kai where multiple groups from the cast are playing out all these different storylines and you feel it's all quite satisfying and a lot has happened. But only 30 minutes has gone by. And you compare and contrast that with something else I've been watching lately like uh, The Rings of Power, the new Lord of the Rings show on Amazon. And it's just a joke. While Rings of Power is very pretty to look at, the plot just meanders, the scripts aren't very well written in my opinion, the acting is shocking in places, and... You throw in a protagonist who's just unlikable and she doesn't like anyone in return. And of course, she's also the smartest. She's also the best fighter. She can't do anything wrong. You never feel she's in danger. And it's like, oh my God, who wrote this? Can we get the Cobra Kai writers in on this? And when you do dig into it, Rings of Power is written by a couple of dudes with barely a credit to their name prior to this. How they were tasked to be given a show that costs 50 million an episode. Some people say more. I really have no idea. It's just bizarre. So, Cobra Kai and Rings of Power, two totally different things I've been watching. And I've also been watching a little Curb Your Enthusiasm, but that's some older episodes there, so nothing too notable for the folks at home, I guess.
1: I must admit, I did see that the new Rings of Power series and the Game of Thrones prequel series had both dropped, and reaction to them was just so visceral and divided and toxic, and I just couldn't get any grasp of, like, are these any good or not? I made the decision I was going to wait till both those series had finished their first seasons, and then perhaps get some sort of level-headed takes on is it worth watching?
0: Mm, I'd be going with Game of Thrones, full stop. Okay, <laughs> we'll discuss that later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> next month, Rob. Yes, next month, Dave.
1: Next month, we are going to take an idea that was sent to us by one of our listeners. Uh, And we didn't think the idea as presented to us would quite work, and we'll explain why next month, but we're taking a a slightly different spin at it. And what we're going to do is talk about our favourite performances by each of the actors who's played the Doctor in something other than Doctor Who. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What's your favourite Hartnell performance outside of Who? Your favourite Colin performance outside of Doctor Who? Your favourite Matt Smith performance outside Doctor Who? Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's what we're going to be talking about, and we'd love to hear, listeners, your suggestions.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a very fun topic. might be harder with the earlier Doctors. People might not have seen a lot of their early stuff. But uh, once you get to the the later Doctors, and particularly the modern Doctors, oh, we're spoiled for choice.
1: I was actually thinking it's going to be harder getting to some of the later Doctors, but... Is that right? uh, Just because in a couple of cases I don't know as much, in a couple of cases I have to really pick from so many wonderful things whereas whereas the early ones i can sort of think oh well there's that or there's that Um, yeah (laughs) but but that said i'm going to take the time over the next month and have a proper look at their careers and maybe see if it's something that i wasn't expecting so yeah we're gonna i mean look what we're gonna do is really celebrate just what a great bunch of actors we've had playing this role and say if you like their performances here's some other stuff you might not have heard of to check out
0: I think it's going to be a very fun show. And if people out there have ideas, please throw them our way.
1: Please do. But that's for a month away.
0: Yes. And until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. And we will see you on the flip side. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to... The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show! We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at thedwshow.net